We're going to continue tonight on the women of the Bible, and tonight we are talking about Hannah, 1 Samuel chapter 1. And I'm going to skip verse 1 because I don't want to have to say all those words. Now we're in verse 2. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other, Penana. And Penana had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Penina his wife and to all her sons and her daughters portions. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, or a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had shut up her womb. And her adversary, speaking of Penina, also provoked her sore, for to make her fret, because the Lord has shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord... So she provoked her, therefore she wept and did not eat. Then said Elkanah, her husband, to her, Hannah, why weepest thou, and why eatest thou not, and why is thy heart grieved? Am I not better to thee than ten sons? Well, the background of this passage is that they were in the time of judges, and there was no king in Israel. In Ephraim, this man, Elkanah, had two wives, which was very specifically, at this time, against the direction of God. The name of the first was Hannah, which we read about. Her name means gracious. It was also that identity that produced fruit. And I want to stop there and pause there for just a second. As I have shared with you, the most difficult thing that's happening in the church today, next to the fact that we have said no to the reality and the presence and the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit, largely as the church, the second most grievous thing following that is that we have reduced the Bible into a book that that tells us what to do and what not to do. And any time you reduce the Bible to that, two things are going to emerge. Spirit of of religion, legalism, is going to emerge. That's a guarantee. Because if we ever draw a line that says these are the things that we should do and these are the things that we should not do and we stand firmly on those things as how I believe, then anybody who doesn't believe like I do is going to feel the legalism that I portray. The spirit of religion will do it every single time. This book was never designed to tell us what to do. It gives us what to do, but it has to be preceded by this reality. It's a book to tell us our identity. Because we're not surprised at all when we hear the name Hannah to understand that it means gracious or grace. And we have no great surprise then when we read about Hannah, what does that name produce? What does that name allow her to release to the people around her? She gets to release the graciousness, the kindness, and the goodness of God into other people's story because her identity is gracious. We would be so surprised if her name was Hannah and she acted like a Jezebel. The name points to the fruit that it's going to release. I've had such an amazing time over the last couple of months I've had so many people who actually heard their name from God and can actually say, I know who I am because God spoke it. I shared with you about this lady that I meet with in Lubbock at 5.33 in the morning, stood up on a cold morning, opened the shades, looking into the backyard to see if it had snowed. And she said, the minute I opened the shade, she said that voice said, promise. And she knew her name was promise. So you would ask yourself, okay, if my name is promise, what is it then that I release? Because the last thing you can do when you start thinking about identity, identity does not create activity. Identity creates fruit, which is produced with no effort. 
I've had someone recently say his name was Pray. What would you think the natural outcome of my identity of Pray would be? It would be prayer. No, it's not. That's activity. That's something you do. If your name is Pray, what are you going to release? And he said it very quickly. I release the spiritual atmosphere of God. Wherever I am, I release the spiritual atmosphere of God. Promise. What does she release? She releases the assurance that God is real. That's a promise. Isn't that amazing? I've got several others that I could share with you that are, that are equally amazing. No one's surprised that Hannah's name is Grace. Because that is exactly what we see that she releases. She was humiliated because she did not have a child. The second woman's name was Panana. This is one of Jan's grandmother's names. Sarah Ethel Panana Stokes Cozart. Sarah Ethel Panana. Panana had several children, boys and girls, and at her hands, strife was evident in the home as she would agitate Hannah as if she were under a curse. I want to tell you, we talk often about generational curses, and I truly, truly struggle with that statement. What we see is not a generational curse. I don't believe God said to Johnny's grandparents, I'm going to curse you, and I'm going to curse your children, and I'm going to curse your grandchildren, and this is curse is going to remain on you. I cannot find anywhere that that is the true identity of God. Why does it look like that, though? It looks like what my grandparents did, my parents did, I find myself doing exactly the same thing. That looks like a generational curse. And I use that, I use that phrase myself. Most of the time, at least, I will say this, what happens is that something happened to the grandparents and how they learned to cope with it, they hand it to their children, who handed it to their children, it looks like a generational curse. It was trained behavior out of some issue that happened several generations ago. And it can be broken. We're not coming to God and say, God, would you remove the curse from me? No, it's re the reality that we have chosen this action ourselves because it was the way something was handed down to us from our grandparents to our parents and then to us. Well, Panana was agitating Hannah as if she were under some curse of God is the reason she couldn't have children. And she was very good at this talent of hers, which seemed to come from her unkind words. Unkind words that come out of a Christian's mouth still shock me. Foul language that comes out of a Christian mouth still shocks me. Curse words that come out of a Christian's mouth still shock me. Don't judge, but man, there's just such a huge disconnect between the unkindness of words that come out of Christian's mouth. Some, sadly, like Panana, some are very, very good at it. The household, however, was very godly, so it says they went up every year and they worshiped God in Shiloh, which was their appointed place. As we read in the story, the difficulty for Hannah, like it is very much today, is that the priesthood under Eli's leadership had become very worldly and had become the way that he made his living. Some of you will absolutely perhaps disagree with this, but I don't believe there should ever be a pastor or a priest. I don't believe there ought to be a minister who is paid by a church if that's the way that they make their living. Say, Randy, how do you say that? Well, because y'all pay me. You know, we pay others. This is absolutely the way I make my living. There's a whole lot of difference between allowing you to pay me for what I do as the pastor here than doing it for a living. Because one says I have to please you. The other one says I'm going to please God no matter what. And I want to tell you, if I ever have to do this for a living, I will not do it. I'm here as your pastor because God revealed it on December the 27th, 2006, standing right here. That's why I'm your pastor. Now, if he changes that, then I'll be glad to go wherever he sends me and stay where I'm put until he sends me somewhere else. But I am not the pastor because this is how I make my living. What happens in that moment is this is what happened here with Eli. It's the minute that this becomes your living, you begin to bring in the practices 
that the world accepts as very normal for somebody who makes a living. We do those things to make ourselves promotable. You want to know why pastors move every two or three years? What are they doing? It's how they make their living. Now, we all do it under the name that God's calling me. Isn't it kind of strange that God always calls me to a bigger church and the more money and the greater salary? Isn't that odd? It's only when we get to the age when nobody wants us anymore that we begin to go down. Well, I want to tell you, this is a commentary. What happens to people when they come to church while they don't want to come to church anymore is exactly what Hannah ran into. Because Eli and his two sons had turned this into a business and they were running it as a business, doing those things that would be very normally acceptable in business, but were not at all appropriate within the temple, within this place of worship. So, but it was custom for the yearly sacrifice to be made and portions to be given to every member. And Elkanah gave to Penina and her family. He gave a double portion to, to, to Hannah because he truly, truly loved her. And he asked her, you know, am I not better than ten sons? But above and beyond the reproach at the hands of Penina, Hannah was also a prophetess. I think this was her greater burden. Because what would a prophetess see? Not only would she realize, I don't have a child, but what else would she carry? She carried the burden of the reality of, the, of, of what was happening within Eli, with his sons, and with the move of God within Israel. She would carry that as a burden. So I think her burden was, was double. Not only did she have the, the, the frustration of not having a child, but as a prophetess, she could also see the spiritual condition of the people around her. It says she wept and she didn't eat. And he tried to comfort her and ask her. So let's go to verse 9 and read just a little bit further. So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh and after they had drunk. Now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by a post of the temple of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and, she, and wept sore. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou will indeed look on the affliction of thy handmaiden and remember me and not forget thy handmaid, but will give unto thy handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life. There shall no razor come upon his head. And it came to pass as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli marked her mouth, or he watched her. Now Hannah, she spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought that she was drunk. And Eli said unto her, How long wilt thou be drunken? Put away thy wine from thee. And Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor drawn drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Count not thy handmaid for a daughter of Belial, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken hitherto. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant thee the petition that thou hast asked of him. And she said, Let thy handmaid find grace in thy sight. So the woman went her way and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad. And they rose up in the morning early and worshipped before the Lord. And returned and came to their house to Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her, so she's going to have a child. She vowed the vow. If you'll give me a child, if you'll remember me and give me this man-child, then I'll not let a razor touch his head, and at the appropriate time, I'll give him to you. Now notice what she did not ask for. She never asked for a son that would be great. She never asked for a son that would be successful. She never asked for a child or a son who would be rich. She never asked for a son that would be popular. She didn't ask for one that would be a good athlete or recognized around the world. She didn't ask for one that was powerful. She didn't ask for any of the things that the world seems to value. Now I want to tell you what a different place this world would be if parents would raise children under a divine order under what God values rather than what the world values. What a strange difference that this world would, would see if only Christians began to raise children under the expectation that what we want for you 
is exactly what God wants for you. Notice what her list did include. What did she ask for? She wanted a Nazarite. Couldn't have asked for anything any harder. Because if she was going to ask for a Nazarite, that meant that a razor wouldn't touch his head. That there were certain things he could not or would not ever do under this Nazarite vow that we read about in the scripture. And she says, I want that child. I want a child who is from the day he is born, I want a child who is 100% committed to God. Why would she say it? Because she loved God more than that child. She didn't have a child for herself. She had a child for God. We go back and look at Eve, and when man-child came to her, she said, now I have. She took ownership of that son, never realizing that she was trying to take possession of something that she had no right to own. We try to take possession of our children in the reality that we have no right to own them. Are they a gift from God or not? If they are, then shouldn't we train them? Shouldn't we teach them? Shouldn't we encourage them, give them guidance according to those things that God values? I taught this in Sunday school this morning. I taught it in here a few months or maybe a year or so ago. How dangerous it is to tell a child that they're special. I will go down a long list with kids and talk to them about, about those characteristics of honesty and integrity and goodness and kindness that is seen in them. But the one word you will not hear me tell a child is that you're special. Because the only way that I can tell a child that they're special is by making them compared to other children. You're smarter than, you're faster than, you're better than. You know better than they do. And the expectation is, and always, is you're building a tower. And I asked the boys this morning, what, when I drew it, what is the characteristics of this tower? It's tall and it's thin. It sits on a base under it. What happens when you start trying to build this tower and it finally gets big enough? What's going to happen? That base under it can't hold it anymore. And it's an ugly picture when a young person who can't be told enough anymore that they're special and they run into the reality that I'm not, what happens? It collapses from inside. And we watch it happen in college students day after day after day because their parents have told them for a lifetime how special you are. And God says, I don't want you to be special. I want you to be significant. I want you to be trained and to be taught that you matter to 7 billion people with whom you share this earth. And that your life was a gift to 7 billion people and it's your responsibility to figure out how to touch as many of those lives under the plan of God that he will possibly allow. Because every life is significant and if we ever were going to point at somebody that was special, it'd have to be Jesus and he wouldn't even take the honor because Jesus himself was significant. That's what she asked for. I want a child that's a Nazarite. I want a man anointed and committed to God. I want a man who would shine in the darkness and one who would know God's heart and know God's voice. I guarantee you today if I could unzip a child and give them a gift, it would be the one thing I'd give them that they would always from infancy be able to hear and recognize the voice of God. And we don't even teach it. We don't even create it in our kids as an expectation that they ought to be able to hear the audible, the rhema word. Faith comes by hearing, a gerund, present tense, continuing. And hearing by every word, rhema word, not logos word, rhema word, a word from a fresh voice, from a living voice. And God says, I want to speak to you. That's the way this works. I want you to obey. How do you know how to obey if you don't hear? How beautiful it would be if we would train our children from the time they're little. What Debbie's doing up in children's church is teaching kids to recognize the voice of God from the time they're infants. What a strange, powerful difference that that would make. Poor Eli looked at her and says, you must be drunk. 
I want to tell you, anytime somebody's in communion with God, it may not look like it should normally look. But Eli had lost touch with the things of the Spirit. He was running a business in the temple. He had lost contact with the Spirit, and he couldn't even discern the broken heart from drunkenness. What a strange commentary that is on him. But her answer was gracious and filled with humility. I didn't hear bitterness. I didn't hear a wounded personal feeling coming out of her. She just simply gave the truth. And Eli strangely says, go in peace. Again, there was a strong contrast between Eve and Hannah because Eve sought a man for herself and says, I have gotten. And Hannah says, I have given. What a strange difference. Even, I love this. What happened when this promise was made? We, got, we have to get this. This, this. Because, you know, I shared with you last Sunday night about John and several people have shared with me over the course of time that it makes them nervous when I talk to John about his vision, about the visions that I've had of him being healed. And some of that is, I think, I don't know exactly. I can't know if I discern their hearts correctly or not. But some of it was that they just don't want him to be hurt. They just don't want him to be disappointed if nothing happens. So I sat down with John a couple of weeks ago and I said, John, you got to talk to me about this. Why do you want me to tell him? He said, how could I be disappointed in the grace that sustains me while I sit in the chair? Because it's the same grace that would lift me out of the chair. I'm not trusting the results. I'm trusting the grace that God gives me for both. It's the same grace. He says, I will never be disappointed. They said, tell them. Tell them I have already come into agreement with what God has said about my healing. Physically, it hadn't shown up yet, but my mind, my heart have come into complete agreement that God has healed me. What did she do? There was no child. She wasn't pregnant. Why did she get up from there? Why did her countenance change? Why did she go eat? Why did she start joining in? Because under what she had just heard, even reluctantly from Eli, who didn't have a clue what he was saying, she came into agreement with that promise that had just been made her, and she began to act and to speak those things that had already come true in her mind, but had not come true physically. That's faith, coming into agreement with what we have not yet seen, but that which has already been spoken, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by every word, the word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And she simply came into agreement, though there was no clue that it was going to happen. I don't think you ever could have even convinced her, well, you know, why don't you not say that? Why don't you not tell this? Why don't you not share this with anybody? Because if you do, you might be disappointed if it doesn't happen. There wasn't even a chance for her. And we don't get quite the full picture of how soon all this stuff happened because it reads like it was like she went home, she got pregnant, and it was all pretty, pretty fast. It may have been. The Bible really doesn't tell us very well the chronology of all the time frame that that happened. But it does say even there at the feast, her countenance changed and she began to eat and she began to participate and she began to praise and began to worship. In the sad countenance that, was, that had put her on her knees a few minutes earlier, the promise of God, the grace of God that she felt had now put her on her feet and she was praising and going about her life as if it had already come true. I want to tell you, one of the hardest testimonies of the Christian church is that we don't come into agreement with the mind of Christ. And so much of it, I, I, again, I can't speak for the people who have asked me about this. Because, you know, one, one Sunday morning, I had a vision of John getting up out of that chair. I mean, I, it wasn't just I didn't see it at a distance. I've had two. One of them, I just saw him walking. He was, and he actually had a brace on that day, and we were in a store. I just saw him kind of pass in front of me. The second time that I saw him, he was laying on a bed in front of me, and I pushed up his pant legs, and his legs were about this big around. I don't know. I haven't seen John's legs in a long time, so I don't know. But when he wears shorts in the summer, they're not like that. 
but they were tiny. And the minute that I pulled those pants legs down, I said, Lord, why not right now? And I want to tell you, I, I not only witnessed the miracle, I felt it emotionally in my dream. He got up off that bed and I said, John, why not try it right now? He got off that bed and he hit that floor and he began to run back and forth and back and forth. Now, I can keep that to myself and say, I'm not going to share that with John because I don't want his hopes up. I can't get John's hopes up. There's nothing I can say that will get John's hopes up because his mind and his heart have already come into agreement with the witness that has already been told. When Rhea and Amanda spoke it over him in their prophecy that he would get up out of that chair, John's mind came into agreement with it. I'm already whole. I'm just waiting for it to happen physically. But he trusts the grace that holds him there, keeps him there, sustains him there, because it's the same grace that will lift him out. And he says, I'll trust the grace of God every day, no matter where I sit. She acted. Her countenance changed. And then she made this very, very strange statement. She says, I will give him to you forever. Forever. Now, we could measure that in any number of ways we want to. We could say, why in the world would she pray so long for a child and then so readily give him up? Well, it's the difference between the fact that her love was a very unselfish one. She loved God better than she loved herself. She loved God better than she loved her son. And she loved God before both. So when he was weaned, she brought him to the tabernacle. And this is why she said to Eli, O my Lord, as the soul liveth, my Lord, I am the woman that stood by thee here, praying unto the Lord for this child I prayed. And the Lord hath given me my petition, which I ask of him. Therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. It was an honor then and should be now for parents to give their child to the Lord for whatever grand purpose he has in mind. Instead, most parents have determined based on their own values what they hope is best for their children. As parents, we must see ourselves as partners with God to train and teach them to hear and yield to God's voice because someday when ours is silent in a dorm room or beyond that, when our voice is not present, we better trust that we've taught them well how to hear the voice of God because the substitute voice that will be in their head may absolutely not be a good one. When yours goes away, who do you want them to hear? It's a fair question. I think I'd just assume they could hear the voice of God. Most gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, what an amazing story of Hannah. What an amazing woman of grace. And we thank you, Lord, for this story, but we thank you, Lord, most of all for the truth that it gives us, the reality it brings to us, because, Lord, we have, others have, millions and millions of others have made decisions about raising children based on values that the world holds that aren't important to you at all. I pray, Lord, that we would recognize it and that by the supernatural reality that you and you alone bring, that we would teach, train, guide our children, hand them over to you very young, so that they could hear your voice, learn to obey, and live in the great mystery and majesty of being royalty. We speak it over our children. We speak that over our parents. In Jesus' name, amen.